All right, 1 Samuel chapter 5. We're going to try to tackle 5 and 6 tonight. The whole theme of the book of 1 Samuel is lessons from the heart. And at this point in time in 1 Samuel, uh, things are not looking good for Israel. Their army is scattered. Their leader, Eli, is dead. His sons, the priests, are also dead. The ark has been captured, rendering worship at the tabernacle impossible. Now, things are probably the worst they've been for God's people since they entered the promised land. Now, we saw lots of things happen in a negative way in the book of Judges, but even when they'd been defeated or oppressed by enemies there, at least they still knew they had the Lord. In their mind, with the ark gone, that means the Lord's gone too, in their mind. But the Lord hasn't forsaken them. In fact, he's going to use this massive defeat to remind the Philistines, not just Israel, but the Philistines who's really in charge, as well as open his people's eyes to their sin. So chapter 5, we'll begin in verse 1. It says, And the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it from Ebenezer unto Ashdod. And when the Philistines took the ark of God, they brought it into the house of Dagon, and they set it by Dagon. And when they of Ashdod arose early in the morrow, behold, Dagon was fallen upon his face to the earth before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon, and they set him in his place again. And when they arose early on the morrow morning, Behold, Dagon was fallen on his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon and both the palms of his hands were cut off upon the threshold. Only the stump of Dagon was left to him. Therefore, neither the priests of Dagon nor any that come into Dagon's house tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod unto this day. But the hand of the Lord was heavy upon them of Ashdod, and he destroyed them and smote them with emeralds, even Ashdod and the coasts thereof. So, kind of an interesting little event here, multiple events that are going on. The Philistines have captured the ark. It says they took the ark of God and brought it from Ebenezer unto Ashdod. And Ebenezer was where Israel's army had set up camp. It was now a ghost camp because every man had fled to his tent. So they had left the ark behind and, uh, because the priests who carried it there were dead. And so they capture the ark and they bring it from Israel's camp to Ashdod. Now, Ashdod is about 30 miles southwest of the battlefield, and it's right on the Mediterranean coastline. It was the chief of the five royal cities of the Philistines. But they did not bring the ark there to put it inside a palace. Verse 2 tells us they brought it into the temple of Dagon. When the Philistines took the ark of God, they brought it into the house, or literally the temple of Dagon, and they set it by Dagon. Now, Dagon in the Hebrew means little fish, but that's likely a mocking word. The Hebrews probably gave him the name Dagon to mock him. Uh, I'll get to why in a second. But Dagon, the god of the Philistines, he wasn't just a god of the Philistines. He was originally a, a Sumerian god, but they had adopted him as their kind of primary god. He was always pictured as a half-man, half-fish creature. Uh, the top half was the man, the bottom half was the fish. But he was not their little fish. To the Philistines, he was their storm god. He was kind of like their equivalent of Zeus. You know, they prayed to him for their crops, you know, for the rain. They, they were a, a maritime people, a traveling people, so they prayed for him to give them good seas. Um, he was their powerful, all-powerful, you know, big-time deity. And so the, they placed, the Philistines placed the ark next to Dagon's statue in his temple to show that our God had defeated Israel's God. And so this is like Dagon's spoils of war. We took our spoils of war, and here's Dagon's spoils of war. Uh, but I think the reason that Hebrews called him little fish is because Dagon was a very tiny fish compared to the one who created the seas. And so it says in the next morning after they set the ark next to the statue of Dagon, they woke up, and this is always disappointing when this happens to your God. Behold, Dagon had fallen and he couldn't get up again. He had fallen upon his face to the earth before the ark of the Lord. Now, fallen on his face, the way Dagon's, uh, the statues always were, is always with one or two palms upward. So if, if he's falling on his face like this or like this, I mean, he's in a position of worship before the ark of the Lord. Prostrate, you know, the position of a worshiper. But when your God falls on your face, what do you do? Well, you just pick him back up and set him on his feet again. 
So that's what they do. They took Dagon and they set him back in his place again. How did you get down here? You know, you don't belong down here. You belong up here. And so that's what they do. Before we continue, aren't you glad that the Lord doesn't need to be propped up by us? Like, I'm so glad, like, the Lord's not counting on me to keep him afloat, you know? That, like, you know, I don't wake up one day and I just, Lord, what is this mess? What has happened to you, you know? And I've got to pick him up and put him up again. I am so glad because most of the time I wake up, I'm already a mess. You know, I don't, I don't usually wake up in the Spirit. An idol can't hear your prayers. It can't hold you up. But the Lord hears our prayers, and he doesn't need to be propped up, held up, picked up by us because he never falls, he never fails. Idols, on the other hand, they are this kind of a burden rather than a blessing. We read about that in, in uh, Psalm 115. You know, it, it said they have eyes, but they can't see. They have ears, but they can't hear. You know, whenever, you know, things happen in Israel, people go, ah, where's your God now, Israel? And, and they would say, Lord, so show mercy, you know, you know, show your strength, you know, show everyone where you are. Because when they ask us, we tell them, our God's real. He's not fake. He's in the heavens. Your God's a little whatever over there. He has eyes, but he can't see. You know, she has feet, but she can't move. This it thing with 13 faces and 12 arms, you know, it has those things, but it can't help you. It can't carry anything for you. And so that's what they would say. Well, where's your God? You know, because Israel didn't have physical representations of their God. It was such a foreign thing back then. And so they would say, well, you know, he's in the heavens and he does whatever he wants. He doesn't have to be carried around by us. He doesn't have to be moved from place to place by us. Now, the problem with worshiping something that claims to be greater than you but is actually lesser than you because you have eyes and you can see, right? Is that Psalm 115, 8 says, they that worship them are like unto them. See, when you worship an idol, well, let me put it this way, okay? When people create an idol, they create an idol to describe the, the, like the best thing they can imagine, you know? So if it's, you know, if they made an idol, you know, that was to the, the you know, control the weather and, and because they needed good crops, that was the highest thing. Like if I just had good weather every year, then, then my life would be great. And so they create a little God that brings them good weather and they worship that God because it's the highest they can imagine their life being. And so what the idol promises you is that highest life that you can imagine, not the highest life that God created you for, but the highest life you could imagine. So whether it's a, a, a God of, of weather, a God of, of, of fertility, a God of pleasure, what, I mean, you name it, you know, all throughout the different pantheons that have existed in the history of the world. Whatever it might be, that was your highest ideal for yourself. God created us to be so much more. So when you worship an idol, that idol promises you that highest life that only you can imagine, but what it ends up doing is it weighs you down and makes you far less than what you're created to be. Because not only has the standard been lowered, but it can't help you even reach this lowered standard, and therefore you actually become the lowest you can possibly be. Now, in opposition to this, Jesus is real. And because he's real, he says this, Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, you who are burdened and laid, you know, weighed down, and I'll give you rest for your souls. Take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You know, how many times that my wife has told me, you really think you're that important? Well, you know, and I'll be worried about something. Well, I didn't do this right, or I messed up here, you know, whether it's with the kids or, you know, uh, you know with, with something, you know. And, and, and she'll say, you really, think, you really think that much is counting on you? And you take a step back and you go, that's a heavy trip to carry around, isn't it? You know? It's a heavy trip to carry around. Oh, my, 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 my kids failed because of me, or, or you know, you know the, the church isn't blessed because of me, or, or you know, everybody, everything's going bad at work because of me. And it's like, well, God's way bigger than me. 
And, and while he calls us to things and he invites us to partner with him in things, right, and it's important that we do those things the right way, the reality is, is we're not meant to carry around the burden of success like that. The Lord doesn't lay that burden on us. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. Now, back to this situation. God obviously is trying to get the Philistines' attention through this. It's not like he just likes knocking down idols. So when the, God's warning to the Philistines doesn't get their attention, he sends a clearer one. Verse 4. They put their God back up, so I figure everything's fine now. Must have been a stiff wind last night. And when they arose early on the morrow morning, behold, Dagon was fallen upon his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. That's the same, but here's the difference. And the head, or literally the top half of Dagon, the human half, and both the palms of his hands were cut off and laying upon the threshold. Only the stump, the fish part of Dagon, that's the only part of the statue that was left where it originally was, where they put it up. Now, I think it's important to understand something here. The phrase cut off does not mean broken or shattered. It's not like the idol fell and it cracked in half and the, the hands cracked and fell off. The word for cut off literally means sliced clean. Sliced clean. So it's not like the statue fell and smashed into pieces. No, this thing was sliced halfway through the middle and then the hands were sliced off. Clean cuts. As if someone came and they you know, took a, I don't know what you'd cut stone or whatever it was made of with, but you know, if they took just a saw or something and whoosh, you know, and it was sitting there on the threshold. Now, the threshold of the temple, that's where people would wipe their dirty, stinky feet upon entering the temple, you know? And that's where Dagon's head and torso and hands are sitting. Now, something else I found was very interesting. Expositor's commentary said, in the ancient world, heads and hands were battlefield trophies that allowed victors to establish a correct body count. The Lord's taking names, you know? He's, he's, he's establishing, you know, the victory count. By slicing up the idol and putting his torso and hands on the threshold, the Lord is saying, I took your God out in his temple. Do you really think it's wise to believe that you defeated me in battle? Do you really think it's wise to challenge me, to think you can control me? You see, the reality is, we looked at last week, and when the Philistines fought against Israel and defeated them, it's not that they defeated them. It's that God allowed Israel to lose. And that is a huge difference. And the Philistines showed their foolishness that they did not understand that difference when they didn't recognize that truth and they put the ark in Dagon's temple. But the Philistines continued to challenge the Lord. So God ups the ante, verse 5. Therefore, and this is where their challenge is, therefore neither the priests of Dagon nor any that come into Dagon's house, they don't even walk on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod unto this day. In other words, in their mind, rather than see their, uh, that their idol was defiled by being thrown in pieces onto a foot wiper, the Philistines decide, oh, the foot wiper's now holy because the idol touched it. And so now they won't even walk over it. Now the, now the, the dirty, stinky place, you know, like if you got near this thing, it would it'd be, it'd reek. But now the thing's holy, you know? It's special because our God's pieces touched it, you know? It takes a special kind of stubbornness to come to that conclusion. And so, verse 6, but <laughs> because they persisted in their foolishness, because they rejected God's correction, the hand of the Lord was heavy. The word means intense, fierce, pressing down on them, bringing hardship upon them. The hand of the Lord was intense, pressing down upon them of Ashdod, and he destroyed them, laid waste to them. How? He smote them with emeralds, even the city of Ashdod and all the villages round about, all the borders of Ashdod, all the little suburbs that were around it. Now, what are emeralds? I, I, all I know is I don't want emeralds. What are they? We don't know for sure. Some people have suggested it was the bubonic plague. The word emeralds, it means tumors or boils in the groin area. Whatever that is, that doesn't sound good. And this wasn't just an uncomfortable or painful plague. 
This was killing people. They were dying from this. And so finally, the Philistines recognized the Lord as the source of the things that had been happening to their God, to their God's statue, and in their city, verse 7. And when the men of Ashdod saw that it was so, they said, huh, the ark of, God of, the, ark of the God of Israel shall not abide or stay with us, for his hand is sore upon us and upon Dagon, our God. The word sore there, it means to bring hardship or trouble. He's doing all this stuff. I mean, he's, he's beating up our God, and now he's killing our people. Now, again, I think it's important to stop for a minute and point out something. Aren't you glad that no one can cause trouble or hardship for the Lord? Like, there's never an event that occurs here on the earth, you know, or anywhere in the universe where, you know, anyone has to look and go, oh, no, man, God's in trouble, you know? Like, how's he going to handle that? No one is causing trouble or hardship for the Lord. In Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 17, a very famous verse, Jeremiah says, uh, well, actually, I think the Lord says to Jeremiah, no, Jeremiah says, Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heaven and the earth by thy great power and and your stretched out arm, and there is nothing too hard for you. And then God responds in verse 27 of the same chapter of Jeremiah 32, and he says, Behold, I am the Lord. I am who you say I am, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? You know, the context of this happening, of this, these statements, when Jeremiah says that and then God responds, the context of it is because the Lord tells Jeremiah, he says, Jeremiah, I want you to go buy some land. Now, why would that be a big deal? Well, Nebuchadnezzar was about to lay siege to Jerusalem and about to destroy it. And God had told Jeremiah this. God knew that Jerusalem was going to be leveled to the ground, that the temple was going to be destroyed, and all of the Israelis were going to be taken, you know, all the Judeans were going to be taken captive to Babylon, you know, most of them at least. And so the Lord, in knowing this is coming, the Lord says, I want you to go buy some land and pass it down to your descendants. And Jeremiah's thinking, why would I buy land that you know, I'm not going to be able to enjoy. I mean, we're going to not even be in the land anymore. And the reason that God told him to do that is because he he told Jeremiah, he said, Jeremiah, even though all this is going to happen, I'm not going to leave you in Babylon. You guys are going to come back. I'm going to restore my people to their land. And I want you to prove that you trust me in this, that I can do this by going and buying this land. So Jeremiah, before he buys the land, he says, oh, Lord God, You've made the heavens and the earth by thy great power. Is anything too hard for you? Because it sounds impossible, right? I mean, that's not a wise investment, Jeremiah. You're throwing your money away. You might as well light it on fire. And yet, he considers when the God tells him to do this, he says, well, you've made the heavens and the earth by thy great power, by thy stretched out arm. Is anything too hard for you? And throughout the conversation they have together, him and the Lord, the Lord finally says, behold, I am the Lord the God of all flesh. Nothing is too hard for me. Hmm. This thing that probably sounded crazy to everybody Jeremiah told the idea to probably seemed like the most impossible thing. But Jeremiah did it because impossible doesn't apply to the Lord. It doesn't apply to him. Because with God, all things are possible. Amen? Amen? Nothing causes trouble or hardship for the Lord. But it was for their God, the Philistines' God, Dagon. He was having a rough time of it. And yet, while the Philistines correctly recognized the, Lord, the Lord's involvement, they don't arrive at the correct solution. They said, he can't stay here. He clearly does not like it here. And so verse 8, they sent, therefore, and they gathered all the lords of the Philistines unto them and said, what shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? And so the Philistine rulers, they answered and they said, well, let the ark of God, the God of Israel be carried about unto Gath. You know, just take it to Gath, you know. Now, the Philistine nation was a, a pentapolis. It was, had five rulers who ruled over five royal cities. I don't know how the inner workings of their government, you know, was handled, but these five guys were the, the guys in charge. And so when they were consulted, they said, the people of Ashland said, it can't stay here. What do we do? And so these five guys said, well, just take it to Gath, you know. Now, Gath 
was the farthest inland of the five royal cities. And as such, it served as the staging area for any raids they made into Israel, and it was their defensive fallback if Israel ever invaded them. So this was a military place, okay? So now I don't know if they thought, the, well, the Lord would be happier if we move him you know, closer to Israel. You know, you know here's, here's a nice spot, Jehovah, up in the window. You can see the hills of your homeland. I don't know if that's what they thought. Perhaps they thought a military city would keep the ark in line. It doesn't tell us why they thought Gath would be a good place. All I know is that whatever their reasoning, it was faulty because the Lord can't be controlled by men. And so look at what happens in verse 9. It says, and it was so that after they had carried it about to Gath, The hand of the Lord was against the city of Gath with a very great destruction. And he smote the men of the city, both small and great, and they had emeralds in their secret parts. They began to break out and become sick with the same plague that had afflicted the area of Ashdod. And it didn't matter who you were, small or great in people's eyes, you were a ruler, you were were a, a poor person, didn't matter. The Lord didn't discriminate in who he judged. The Lord never discriminates in who he judges because we are all infinitesimally small when compared to the Lord, no matter what our standing is in other people's minds. So, since Gath doesn't work out well, they thought, well, maybe a new city will work. Verse 10, therefore, they sent the ark of God to Ekron. Now, Ekron was another of these royal cities, and the people of Ekron worshipped a god named Beelzebub. And Beelzebub was a god associated with good health. And so they probably figured, let's send it to Ekron because he can protect us from this plague, this disease. That'll teach Israel's God. We'll send him to the place that he can't get anybody sick. Well, it came to pass, verse 10, that as the ark of God came to Ekron, that the Ekronites cried out. They did not have a lot of faith in Beelzebub. They cried out and they said, they have brought about the ark of God of Israel to to us to slay us and our people. They also did not have a whole lot of confidence in their leadership. Why are they bringing the ark? They brought the ark here to kill us. And so verse 11, they sent and they gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it go again to his own place that it does not slay us and our people. And why were they saying that? For there was a deadly destruction throughout all the city and the hand of God was very heavy there. So it does not go well in Ekron. Um, Their solution is return it to his own place. He's clearly not happy. The Lord's clearly not happy anywhere we try to put him, send him back home to Israel. Because throughout the city, there was a deadly destruction. The phrase there means there was panic and turmoil because of the plague. And the hand of God was very heavy there. Not just heavy, but very heavy. In other words, every time the Philistines reacted to the Lord's judgment by trying to control him, the Lord upped the severity of the judgment every single time. And this time, the entire city came to a screeching halt, filled with the wails of the sick and the dying. So the people demanded that their leaders return the ark to Israel. For it says in verse 12, the men that did not die were smitten with the emeralds, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. I mean, this was bad stuff. It was rough. So they tell their leaders, they can't stay here. You've got to send it back to Israel. But how exactly are they supposed to do that? Their current solution clearly wasn't working, but what should they do? Chapter 6, verse 1. And the ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. So all this is going on that I've read through here in these 12 verses of chapter 5. That took seven months to occur. I imagine that made it difficult for the Philistines to follow up on their victory over Israel. They couldn't push deeper into Israel. They couldn't, you know, they were probably having so many domestic messes, they, they couldn't, you know, handle anything, you know, any further. So that would probably also give Israel some time to regroup. When we see Israel again, they do have an army organized again. So um, these seven months gave time for these things to happen. So the ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines for seven months, verse 2, and the Philistines, the leaders, they called for the priests and the diviners, saying, what shall we do to the ark of the Lord? Tell us wherewith we shall send it to his place. Now, the diviners, uh, it's hard to know exactly what is meant by this. Uh, Some people who practiced divination back then, they would uh, use the organs of ritually sacrificed animals to divine the will of the gods. Uh, so, you know, they would, you know, kill an animal, offer it as an offering, and then, you know, read the organs. 
Some diviners, they would cast lots, you know, and so whatever came out, that was what the will of the gods was. I don't know which one it was. But the point is, these guys were considered experts in their field, and therefore they were important counselors to the political leaders, especially when you had spiritual matters going on. So they are consulted here about what to do with the ark of the Lord. So the Philistine leaders have not, they have not decided to send it away. That's what, where they were recommended by the people of Ekron, send it away to Israel again. They don't know what to do with it. As tell us wherewith we shall send it to his place. In other words, tell us in what way we can send him to whatever place he'll be happy in, you know? Because it didn't make sense for them to go up to the closest Israeli army and say, uh, hi, we're returning your God. He didn't like it in Philistia. Many Philistines had died. Surely word would have gotten to Israel about this, and Israel might perceive this as an act of weakness by the Philistines. But they also, they didn't want to upset the Lord again by doing it in a way that didn't make him happy. And so they consult with these spiritual counselors about what to do and how to do it. Now, again, before we, need, we move on, I think we need to stop for a minute because I, I do need to point out the sadness of this mindset, this decision-making processes. Because the truth is, they still don't repent. Like, they don't acknowledge they're wrong. They don't acknowledge they've done anything wrong, you know? They just want God to leave them alone. And in a sense, that's still trying to control the Lord. They're going to try to keep him pacified or happy enough to leave, him, leave them alone, right? That's still trying to control the Lord. There are many people who go to church or go to a religious place today for the very same reason. I want to keep God happy enough to leave me alone. Can I encourage you not to practice that kind of Christianity? <laughs> God cannot be appeased by religious or even respectful activities. Because here's the truth. Jesus already took care of God's wrath on the cross, right? There's nothing to appease in that sense. And he did that so we could come close to the Lord not be left alone, to experience his love, not to think we don't need it. So this is a very sad decision on the part of these rulers. What do these spiritual experts advise? Verse 3, and they said, listen, if you're going to send the ark of the God of Israel, if you send away the ark of the God of Israel, send, don't send it empty-handed. You know, if you're going to send them back home, if that's what you're considering, back to the land of Israel, then don't send it empty-handed. But in any wise, return him a trespass offering. Now, this shows that they understood a little bit about Israeli religion, even if they didn't fully understand it, because they knew that it, the trespass offering was something you did when you've really blown it, you know? So you guys need to send some acknowledgement that you guys have really blown it, you know? Some type of sacrifice that confesses that. Then, if you do that, then you shall be healed, the plague will go away, and it shall be known to you why his hand is not removed from you. In other words, you know, then you'll know why he's upset with you. <laughs> the crazy thing about all this is the rulers thought they were innocent. They really didn't think they'd done anything wrong. You know, taking the other team's God and putting his stuff in your temple, that's what the winning side always does. That's just how the rules work. So that can't be it. Maybe we didn't carry him a certain way. Or maybe he likes people to sing to him. Or maybe we should have put flowers on his box. All of these things show that they were treating the Lord like they would in the Ark of the Covenant, in a sense, like they would any other idol, any other representation of a God. This refusal to recognize that the Lord is holy. We sang about that quite a bit tonight, you know. This refusal to recognize the Lord is holy that he isn't like an idol, that he's the living God. He's not some statue or a piece of wood, that he's the living God, and that his standard is the standard for all. That refusal is mankind's biggest problem. That's, 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 where, that's where the rubber meets the road for every single individual. I remember reading... Um, I 
her name is escaping me right now. Her last name's Butterfield. Anyway, she is a, a wife of a Presbyterian pastor, I want to say on the East Coast, around like the Maryland, Virginia area. But she was quite famous before she became a Christian. She was the, the dean of um, incoming students at Syracuse University, and she was um, a very uh, well-known LGBT spokesperson. She spoke at the Democratic National Convention, a lot of things, big name. But there was a small little church near the campus that kept reaching out to her, loved her, invited her to church. And as she started to go and started to learn the scriptures, she explains in her testimony where she shares her, her faith of how she got saved, she says, my problem wasn't my homosexuality, my sin, my sexual sin. She said, my problem was that I didn't want anyone telling me what to do. That I didn't want to acknowledge the fact that God had a way of doing things and I needed to get in line with it. That's where the rubber met the road for her. And that's where it is for all of us. It doesn't matter what the sin is. It, if we refuse to give it up, it, it be, it's because we're saying, well, no, I, you don't have that kind of claim on my life, you know? Like, like, I'll do this for you, and I'll do this for you, and I'll do this for you, but I get to decide what I do, not you. You're not God. I am That is mankind's biggest problem. That's why the angels cry, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty over and over and over again. Because it's the thing we just don't get. <laughs> there is no God beside him and God isn't like us. He's unique from all of his creation to all of his creation. Therefore, we should be humble and look to him for answers of how life is supposed to work in all matters. I'm going to ask you tonight. The Philistines refused to do that, but do you do that? Do you humble yourself before him? Do you look to him for answers on how life is supposed to work? Do you look to his word to find those answers? Well, this is a recommendation for a trespass offering, verse 4. Then said they, oh, then the Philistines asked, Lord's asked, what shall, we, what shall be the trespass offering which we shall return to him? And so these spiritual advisors, they said, well, five golden emeralds, it's a bit morbid, they make little golden tumors, I don't want to know what they look like, and then five golden mice, the explanation for that will be given in the next verse. According to the number of all the lords of the Philistines, for one plague was on you all and on your lords. So the idea here is the same plague hit all the cities you took it to. This is on you guys. You guys have done something wrong. And so you need to give five, each of you give an offering of both a tumor, you know, a golden tumor statue, whatever that was, and a golden little, you know, Cinderella mice statue, whatever that was, you know. That's your acknowledgement that you blew it, that the same thing happened to all of you because all of you blew it in some way. That's what you'll do. And uh, how will you make them? Wherefore, you shall make images of your emeralds and images of, the my, your, of your mice that mar the land. The word there, mar, means to ruin or corrupt the, the crops. Apparently, God had sent a plague of rodents of some kind, and they had wrecked the, the agriculture of the Philistines as well. And so that's why they needed to make the mice as well. And in doing this, you shall give glory unto the God of Israel, perhaps... He will lighten his hand from off you and from off of your gods and from off of your land. Now, in this, the religious counselors nailed it. They had never, the Philistine lords had never acknowledged God's sovereignty. They had never given God glory. They treated him like he was just another idol. So these gifts would be their way of acknowledging this sin. Now, based upon the religious counselor's reaction, the five rulers didn't like this idea. And you know, if you ever share with someone about their sin, it's funny, you, know, you talk about the Lord, and, and you know, some people be like, oh yeah, yeah, I like Jesus, I like the idea of that. Some people obviously don't want anything to do with God. But so, oh yeah, but then the minute you start talking about sin, the wall comes up and they get hard, right? You know, you, you don't have any right to be up in my business. You know, all the various answers that you may get. Because... When you're confronted with the reality of your sin, this is the part where we just want God to butt out. Leave me alone. 
Let me do what I want to do. I'll give you this. I'll give you that. I'll do this for you. But just let me live my life. And so, verse 6, the spiritual experts, they say, why then do you harden your hearts? And they tell them, this is what you need to do. And apparently the Philistine lords are all looking at each other and go, I don't know. Because they say, why are you hardening your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? When he had wrought wonderfully among them, did they not let the people go and they departed? Why are you hesitating? Why are you hardening your heart? The Lord's upset with you, but you keep acting like you're in control. That didn't work for Egypt, and it's not working for you. People are dying. When the Lord dealt wonderfully, the word there means harshly, with Egypt, Their only answer was to do what God said, to let the Israeli people go. Don't let your pride destroy our people. So verse 7, here's what they say. Now, therefore, make a new cart and take two milch kine. Uh, Milch kine uh, would be cows that have given birth and they were nursing. Um, Not some old cow you've worked with in the fields, you know, that's half dead, you know. No, have, you know, two younger ones that have just given birth, they're nursing, Make a new cart and then take two milch kine on the which has come no yoke. You've never worked them, you know, in the field. And then tie the kine to the cart and take their calves away from them. Bring the calves home. Why? We'll get to that when we see verse 9. Verse 8. And then take the ark of the Lord, lay it upon the cart, and then put the jewels of gold, the tumor, golden tumors and golden mice. And lay, I feel like I need to take a bath every time I say that. Take the ark of the Lord, put the jewels of gold which you return him for a trespass offering in a coffer by the side thereof, and send it away that it may go. In other words, no driver, just give it a good yah, and then send it on its way. And see if it goes up by the way of his own coast to Beth Shemesh. In other words, if, if the ark goes towards his homeland, the Lord's homeland, you know, Israel, because that's how they looked at things back then. Beth Shemesh was the uh, closest city. It was about nine miles east of Ekron where the ark is right now, the closest Israeli city. It was also a Levitical city and therefore the best place to send the ark to because they'd know what to do with it. So they said, you know, if it goes up by the way of his own coast to Beth Shemesh, well, then you'll know, he, you know then he has done us this great evil. You'll, you'll know it's not just coincidence. But if not, then we'll know it was not his hand that smote us. It was chance that happened to us. So, I mean, he could tell that the spiritual experts can tell these guys are still hemming and hawing. They said, just do this. Put it on a cart. Take two cows that their first priority would be to their calves, their, their baby calves. Take their calves away from them. And if these two cows that have never, you know, taken a cart anywhere before, never been worked before, never had this experience, and they head up to the Lord's homeland to Beth Shemesh, well, then you know it's the Lord and that he did this to us. And if it doesn't happen, well, then you just know it's coincidence and, well, I guess just people are going to die. Now, going that direction would be against these mommy cows' natural instinct. And therefore, it would confirm Israel, uh, God's hand in the situation. And yet, we still don't see repentant hearts. Well, if the cows don't go up there, well, then we know it's just chance. And so, do whatever you want with the ark. It has nothing to do with what's happening. I love what David Goodzik made when he made a comment on this. He said, after all, no one wants to repent unnecessarily. <laughs> Verse 10. And the men did so. They finally decided to give in. And they took two milch kine, tied them to the cart, shut up their calves at home. And they laid the ark of the Lord upon the cart and the coffer with the mice. They put a, a big box that had their little statues of mice and the images of their emeralds. And the kine, they took the straight way, the, just a straight path to the way of Beth, the road to Beth Shemesh. And they went along the highway lowing as they went, bellowing. The cows were not happy about leaving their calves behind. But it says, it goes on to say, and they did not turn aside to the left hand, right hand or to the left. And the lords of the Philistines went after them under the border of Beth Shemesh. So they stayed on course all the way to this Israeli Levitical city. Again, these two car- cows had never pulled a cart before, either alone or together. They did it without a driver, And they traveled 10 miles straight to a city that they'd never been to while leaving their calves behind. That is a miracle, (laughs) an absolute miracle. And so the Philistines, you know, they 
They probably figured out, this, the Lord's been judging us. Verse 13, what happens when it gets to Beth Shemesh? Well, it says, those of Beth Shemesh, the people who lived there, they were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. And they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark. And you hear a bunch of cows, you know, bellowing, you know. I, I, you know, cows are interesting. I remember when we were, we were on vacation once and we came down from the place we were staying at, the cabin or whatever we were staying at, and it's all these cows and stuff, bulls out in the, in the field. They didn't make a peep. You know, they don't strike me as loud, you know, bustling animals. And yet these cows are just complaining the whole way they're going. And so as the noise comes up, they look up and they saw the ark and they rejoiced to see it. And so the cart came into the field of Joshua, Beth Shemite, and it stopped there where there was a great stone. And so the people, they chopped up the wood of the cart and then they killed the two cows. They offered the cows as a burnt offering unto the Lord. Now, the reason they rejoiced is because for seven months, Israel had been out without the Lord's presence in their mind. The ark was gone. And they had taken that as a sign now of the Lord's return to Israel, that he'd come back. But their joy is not acted upon in the correct way. These burnt offering, this burnt offering unto the Lord, violated multiple commands from the law of Moses. First off, offerings to God had to be male animals. Leviticus 22, verse 19 is very clear about that. Secondly, offerings were only to be made at the tabernacle. Deuteronomy 12, verses 5 and 6 say you're not supposed to do it anywhere else. And thirdly, a burnt offering symbolized complete surrender to the Lord. It's hypocrisy to do a ritual that symbolizes complete surrender at the same time you're ignoring God's commands. This was not a good thing. They were excited because for seven months they'd been without the Lord in their mind and now he's back. But their spiritual excitement also shows their spiritual ignorance (laughs) because the Lord isn't in an ark, you know? The Lord's not in a box. You know, he's not like an idol. So they make the same mistake the Philistines do in their spiritual excitement. Something that's important to point out is that spiritual excitement is never an excuse for disobedience. Now, when some of the Levites in the city saw what was going on, they intervened, verse 15. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord. I don't know where the Israelis had put it. They wasn't on the cart anymore because they chopped it up to make firewood. So I don't know why they thought it was okay to grab this thing and to put it somewhere as like a prize, but they had. So the Levites, when they came, they took it down and the coffer that was with it, wherein the jewels of the gold were, and they put them on the great stone. They took the jewels, not the ark. Put the jewels on the great stone. But notice, even though the Levites intervene, the men of Beth Shemesh, they offered burnt offerings and sacrifice sacrifices the same day unto the Lord. They just keep partying on. Now, I do have to point out that this seems like the first decent Levites we've met during the period of Judges. We have not had good Levites examples that we've seen so far. They recognize that the ark is supposed to be covered. It's not supposed to be up as a prize. And so they take it down from wherever the Israelis had set it up for for their celebration. But that did not move the people to repentance. They continued on with their disobedient celebration, showing that nothing had changed in the seven months of the ark absence. Now, with the ark safely in Israeli hands again, Philistines, verse 16, when the five lords of the Philistines had seen it, they returned to Ekron the same day. They decide that they can go home. We're okay now. You know, the Lord is going to leave us alone. Uh, So they return home to see if their plan worked. Verse 17, And these are the golden emeralds which the Philistines returned for a trespass offering unto the Lord, for Ashdod one, Gaza one, Eskelon one, for Gath one, one, and for Ekron one. So five of these golden tumors for each city. But the golden mice, it wasn't just five, they actually made a lot more. They made enough of these golden mice statues according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines, uh, I'm sorry, the cities of the Philistines belonging to the five lords. If they were walled cities, if they were just country villages, 
any city in the land of the Philistines all the way up to the stone of Abel. That's the stone there in Beth Shemesh where the ark came to a stop. They made a, a golden mouse for every one of those cities. So there were dozens of them whereon they set down the ark of the Lord. And whoever wrote the book of 1 Samuel says, that stone remains unto this day in the field of Joshua, the Beth Shemite. So he's telling whoever's reading this, you can go see that stone is still there today. So the rulers exceeded the priest's recommendations, their, their diviner's recommendations. Hopefully that would keep God happy enough to leave them alone. We don't hear the end of the story. It seems to imply that the plague went away. But again, that's not a happy ending because the Philistines are still without the Lord. So in their mind, maybe they thought it was good, but certainly not what the Lord wanted. Well, verse 19, this would seem like should be the end of the chapter, but just like the Lord dealt with the Philistines, now God has to deal with his own people. Verse 19, and he smote the men of Beth Shemesh because they had King James says, looked into the ark of the Lord, but it actually just means looked upon the ark of the Lord. He smote the men of Beth Shemesh because they had looked upon the ark of the Lord. Even he smote of the people 50,070 men. And the people lamented because the Lord had smitten many of the people with a great slaughter. Now, I don't think the Lord was upset because the ark came up on this cart that the Philistines had put it on and the cows are bellowing and everybody got their attention and it's kind of like a Medusa thing, like, you know? I don't think that's why the Lord was upset. The concept here is that they treated the ark like it was a cake topper, you know? Like it, it, was, it was this, you know, this icon, you know, that they could just put somewhere and, and almost treat like an object of worship. The ark under the law of Moses wasn't to be touched by or even looked upon by the Levites, let alone gawked at during a party. It was to be covered when it was in public. It was to be carried on special staves that they would put through the rings of the Ark of the Covenant, not moved by hands. And yet the people knew this. They didn't go get the Levites immediately. They didn't go make sure it was covered up. They didn't make sure it was transported correctly. To move it from the cart, the people have had to handle it in some way. For the Levites to have to take it down from wherever they put it means they touched it and they put it somewhere. And so the Lord, he wasn't going to let them treat him like they would an idol. And so he killed 50,070 people. Now, Beth Shemesh was not a town of that size. So the, that means word had spread and people had flocked to look at, to gawk at the ark. That's why God judged them. This was widespread disregard for the holiness of God, that he's unique and different, and therefore it required widespread judgment. And sadly, the people of Beth Shemesh respond the same way the Philistines did, verse 20. And the men of Beth Shemesh said, who is able to stand before this holy God? And to whom shall he go up from us? He can't stay here. We don't want that. Who is able to stand before this holy God? Good question. The answer is no one. The Bible says in Romans 3.23, for there is none good, no, not one. Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death. None of us can stand in our own righteousness before a holy God. That's why the Lord gave Israel so many instructions concerning their worship. He doesn't want to destroy us. He wanted to forgive us. He wanted to draw us close. But that requires humility and it requires coming in his righteousness instead of my own. That's why the cross was necessary. All, all of Israel's worship points forward to the cross. Now realizing this mistake that God is holy and they're not. It should have brought them to repentance. But instead, they think God was unreasonable to expect them to keep his commands. Sound familiar? I can't tell you how many people today tell me, well, I just don't think God's fair. I don't think that's right for God to expect that. I don't think it's right for God to judge people. I don't think hell's fair. All the things that people say. 
But that kind of pride presumes that I'm somehow more capable of knowing right and wrong, fair and unfair, than the one who created everything and knows everything. At its heart, anytime someone says that, what they're really saying is, I'm a better God. And when I have that mentality, I don't want to get closer to the Lord. I want Him to go away and leave me be because I'm good on my own. And so they ask where they can send the Lord's presence. Verse 21, and they sent messengers to the inhabitants of kirjath Jerem, saying, the Philistines have brought again the ark of the Lord. Come you down and fetch it up to you. <laughs> we don't want it. You come get it. Now, kirjath Jerem was the nearest city on the road to Shiloh, the location of the tabernacle. So their thought is, well, just get it that way, you know, get it that way, get it away from us. But how is this any different from the Philistines' attempts to control the Lord's influence in their lives? It isn't. You see, Israel may not have done the same thing with the ark that the Philistines did, but they had treated it the same, like an idol, something less than them, something that wasn't alive. Now, Proverbs, or sorry, Psalm 14.1 makes the very important statement, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. All right? Anytime someone gets involved in idolatry, that's absolute foolishness. Now, Proverbs 22.15 tells us that foolishness is bound up in the heart of the child, and so parents, you got to use the rod of correction to drive it out of his heart. That's, that's the job of a parent, is to train their child, to discipline and teach their child so that foolishness is driven out of their heart, so that by the time you release them into the world, they are no longer fools right? That they are mature adults who can make good decisions, thoughtful decisions, godly decisions. Foolishness is something we're all born with. Therefore, there's only one solution if my heart is still foolish when I become an adult. God has to discipline me. And when I treat the Lord like he's a fairy or an icon, it's the same as saying there's no God because fairies don't exist. Idols aren't alive, but Jehovah is the living God. So when he says, don't gawk at the Ark of the Covenant, there's a good reason. And since he's real, he can enforce the necessary penalty when I ignore him so that I stop being foolish. See, the lesson from the heart that we learned today is that both the Philistines and the nation of Israel, they had hearts that still needed to be disciplined to drive out the foolishness that exists in these two chapters. So the application for us is let's learn from their discipline so we don't repeat their mistakes, amen? (laughs) Let's not treat God's commands like they're icons of our faith. Let's treat them as the words of our creator, our master, and our savior. And let's remember that he loves us immensely. Prove that he loves us immensely on the cross. And that when he gives those commands, he always has our best interest in mind. Let's all stand.